Hello there, it's Jordan here, and welcome to your February IBMS pod. We'll be speaking to toxicologist Nigel Brown in a moment, but first here's the latest news and updates from the IBMS. Nominations for the 2021 Biomedical Scientist of the Year Award are open now. The IBMS will once again sponsor this prestigious Advancing Healthcare Award category, which celebrates an exceptional biomedical scientist who has advanced clinical practice in an innovative and impactful way. Last year's winner, Dr Guy Orchard, a consultant biomedical scientist at St Thomas's Hospital in London, said it was a tremendous honour to receive the award and have his innovations recognised by his peers and the professional body. Full details of how to nominate yourself or a colleague can be found on the IBMS's website. Also this month, IBMS President Alan Wilson has been awarded the position of Visiting Professor by Robert Gordon University in Aberdeen. The professorship will initially last three years and gives Alan full access to the university's facilities. After winning the award, he said he was deeply honoured and will use the position to further promote the training and education of biomedical scientists. The IBMS is piloting a new mentoring programme. Members can sign up for an online system and be matched with other members who can help them with specific goals, such as interview advice or career progression tips. You can register now for the scheme through our website. And finally this month, the Science Council is inviting IBMS members to light the way by sharing your story of blowing CPD in 2020. Applications are now open. You can find details about applying and links to more information on all our stories in our show notes. Well, welcome to Nigel Brown, who is a consultant clinical scientist in toxicology. Uh, Nigel, can you kick off by telling us just a, a little bit about your job and what you do? Right. I run a regional toxicology service in the northeast of England. And my job really is these days interpreting results. So explaining to clinicians and the coroners what the numbers mean that we found in the lab. Um, that's basically it. And I mean, that's quite a kind of a small niche of biomedical science. How, how did you, what's been your career path to get there, Nigel? Right. I started off in 1982 as a junior B MLSO in, up in the Northeast. Um, worked as a MLSO for about seven years. Then for family reasons, moved over to the university sector, worked as a research technician, then as a research assistant. Um, and they very kindly threw in an MSc and a PhD in with the job. Having finished that, I'd managed to make myself unemployable as a biomedical scientist, so moved back into the NHS as a clinical scientist measuring immunosuppressive drugs for a transplant unit, and then came up to this job. Now it's coming up 10 years ago. Oh, brilliant. And you also do a fair bit of other work with the IBMS, don't you? You're involved in the journal? Yeah. Um, one of the reasons for that is I'm just interested in the academic side of things, but also I'm acutely aware that we don't have enough people trained in the various sort of niche specialties within pathology in the NHS. And so this is a way of sort of trying to encourage that, but also it's something I enjoy doing. Um, and I volunteered and I was snapped up, I think. Yes. Wrong place at the wrong time, possibly, but I have thoroughly enjoyed it. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Well, I'm, I'm going to pass you over to Jordan, who, who's got a few more questions uh, for you now, Nigel. So, Nigel, as a toxicologist, you have a very broad remit in some of the scientific work that 
you undertake in the lab and outside of the lab as well. So could you explain some of the main duties and aspects of your role? Right. Um, so I think we can split the job into sort of various sort of bits. The main part is doing urine drug screening for the drug recovery services. So a client will pitch up at the various centres. They will take a urine sample as part of the consultation and they will say, be saying, they'll be claiming to use certain drugs. We then check that those drugs are there, also check that they're taking the methadone or the buprenorphine. And if we find something untoward, we can then advise the clinicians as to what that might mean and confirm or refute what the client has been telling the, the clinician, which helps build and strengthen that relationship between the client and the clinician and hopefully then guides the client towards recovery. Um, we do some screening as well for emergency admissions to hospitals. Um, quite, That's not that common, but occasionally we're asked to screen for more unusual drugs, which could be a bit, bit of a detective hunt because we're looking for a drug that we may not know about in the urine with a scanning mass spectrometer. Um, what else? Yes, we also run the regional service for ethylene glycol, that's antifreeze. Unfortunately, some folk do like drinking antifreeze. I don't recommend it because your body metabolizes it to the poison that's in rhubarb leaves, uh, which doesn't do you much good. But you do get very pretty birefringent crystals in your kidneys. But clearly, once you're at that stage, you don't need your kidneys anymore. So moving on um, to a more cheerful note, not. Um, the other big chunk of work we do is post-mortem work for the coroner. So um, these aren't forensic cases. These aren't um, anything with criminal intent, but where the coroner requires us to do some toxicology to see what drugs the person may have taken leading up to their death, um, which can be interesting, but it gets a bit repetitive at times and can actually get you down after a while when you're dealing with yet another, another death. That's basically my job. Mm, and you do some work with the social services as well. Yes, we do. Um, these are mainly leading on from drug screens we've done for maternity, um, where mum, sadly, is taking substances throughout pregnancy. And it's part of the way of with maternity to try to engage with the person concerned and try to get the substance use under control. Hopefully they can. But what we do is we then provide a more detailed report for social services written in non-clinical language so that social services and legal people can understand it. And that then helps make their decision as to whether the child stays with the mum or with the immediate family or is taken into care. Thankfully, we don't have to make those decisions, um, but mm -hmm. we advise them. And in the laboratory then, in, a, in the clinical setting, what are some of the most common drugs or screening cases <sighs> on, a typical, on a daily basis? That's difficult to say because patterns change. Um, and obviously, I can't give too much away as to what we find because there might be some people who are quite interested. But I would say probably at the moment, our number one drug is cocaine, um, which I know that folk have a view that it's quite a mild drug, but it's not. Um, it does have some serious toxicity and it, long term, it can cause some quite serious issues. Um, of course, there's always heroin. Um, diazepam and so on but i'd say probably cocaine's our number one and of course well alcohol which is actually a drug is 
definitely number one, but we don't screen for much for that. Okay. And could you walk us through the process a little bit in the lab? If someone was to come in with a suspected alcoholic poisoning or drug poisoning, what would be the step that you'd take? Right. We would, first thing we'd do is, your drug screen, it's a very simple screen polyimmunoassays on an automated chemistry analyzer. We also measure the creatinine to look to see whether the sample has been diluted or not, because some folk will add water to the urine after they've given it, after they've voided it, um, to avoid detection of the drugs. If we, if that's negative and the clinicians haven't asked us to look for anything else, that's it. We just report it then. Mm. Otherwise, if there's any positives there, we'll then confirm them using mass spectrometry. Um, we've got two tandem mass spectrometers and we'll confirm the presence of various drugs and we look for other commonly abused um, prescription drugs, for instance, pregabalin, gabapentin and so on. If it's something very unusual, we may put it through the scanning mass spectrometer, it's a time of flight analyzer, um, which has the ability to look for drugs that we don't know about, um, which sounds dead easy. It's you get a forest of peaks and you think got to try and work out what each one is. But that then gives us a clue as to what the patient or the person may have taken. But we need to have good discussion with the clinicians to find out what they think it might be to give us a clue as to what the, to look for in the, in the urine. Um, and that's based, yes, that's the, the reporting route. So it's, it's, we can do an urgent drug screen in about two hours, but typically you're talking 24 hours and anything with this with a scanning mass spectrometer, probably a, a week, that sort of length of time. Nigel, just to jump in from yeah. here, um, have you found that the drugs people are taking in lockdown has changed much and has, has the kind of prevalence of drug taking changed as well? Can people, are people not taking as many drugs because they're stuck at home or are people taking more drugs or something like that? Difficult to say. I'm going to answer very carefully because clearly... I know some things that, having had discussions with various legal people, that I can't then sort of say, oh, well, this is the case because X has happened. My hunch is, is that patterns are changing slightly, but people seem to be still getting hold of their drugs quite easily. Um, I did hear, did read in the local paper, for instance, that the our local station was used by some of the county lines people, and they've been able to police been able to deal with them quite effectively because there's been so few people on the trains. They, I imagine there's now a different way of delivering them. Um, but um, certainly from what I can tell, and this is from reading in the, in the local press, you know, patterns have changed, supply lines are changing, but um, there's a lot of money to be made from dealing with drugs. So the criminal gangs aren't going to sit back and relax and watch daytime telly, shall we say. Mm. And has it been, um, I mean, you, you mentioned earlier that some aspects of your, your job are quite dark and it can be, uh, you know, quite quite tricky having to deal with this on a daily basis. Mm. If, if you had lockdown on top of that, you know, is, is it quite a, quite a tough period for you? It's, it encouraged me to get back on my bicycle. Um, and I started cycling in when the first lockdown occurred. And to start off was absolutely lovely because the birds were singing. And mm. There was one morning pushing the bike up, the, up one of the hills because I'm lazy. Um, saw two deer just standing there. And that, that was lovely. And being able to cycle to and from work actually means you can sort of do a brain dump. 
particularly on the way home again. And I've noticed I'm driving at the moment because I came off my bicycle, hit some bits of ice. Um, so I'm being a bit of a coward. But I've noticed with driving, you don't get that same chance to do a brain download. So uh, cycling is the way through it. And my missus is a part-time vicar. And so occasionally we just sort of talk about people without mentioning any names because she often has similar things that she's dealing with. Um, doing funerals of people that I may or may not have done the toxicology on. Ah, so, Nigel, we were originally due to record this episode last week, but um, you were called upon, right, to speak at a coroner's inquest. So, yeah. And you also work quite closely with the police and the social services and various health charities, I understand. So how much of your role is based outside of the lab? On an average week, I would say, because I do the reporting side of it, and the others are in the lab doing the hard work, I suppose, yes. Um, I spent my, the bulk of my job now is liaising with other folk. Um, so I tend to feel the phone calls, because generally speaking, when people ring up for results, they just don't want the results. They want to, be, they want to have a little explanation of what that might mean. Their client has said X, does that results pattern fit? So I would say the bulk of my job now is is dealing with folk outside the laboratory. Um, and sadly, especially with the scanning mass spectrometer now, really, I can, I can look at the results, but I wouldn't know how on earth to turn the thing on or to start a runoff, um, which as somebody who enjoys lab work, I do find that quite, you know, a bit upsetting at times, but it's the way it is, you know. It's, I'll just ask you, Nigel, what do you enjoy the most yeah. about the role? Um, the most enjoyable bit is when we find a new drug mm. um, and looking to see its metabolism, seeing, looking at the fragmentation pattern on the, on the scanning mass spectrometer, developing a new method. That I thoroughly enjoy. Um, and probably the, apart from when there's days when there's cake is brought into the staff room, mm. that's, which is probably the very best time at work. But apart from that, new drugs mm, mm. and what is the most challenging aspect of being a toxicologist it's probably the reporting um particularly when you've got family um issues as well i mean i remember the day that after dad died a couple of years ago having to come into work the day after he died. I took that day off, but the next day, then having to sit down and do post-mortem reports, that was quite tough. So it's that. So it's when it sort of crunches into life, and you're dealing with family bereavements, and at the same time, you then got to come in and deal with, and obviously be professional with bereavements at work. What kind of? How do you continue to learn and develop your knowledge and skills throughout your career? What kind of CPD do you do as a toxicologist? Yeah, it has to be self-guided. Mm. So I keep a watching brief on the main toxicology journals. Um, I'm a member of the London Toxicology Group. There's the UK Association of, of Forensic to UK and Ireland, sorry, Forensic Association of Forensic Toxicologists. And there's an international group, which is the IATDMCT. I just keep an eye on those things. Um, and just do regular journal scannings. If, say, a coroner's officer or a clinician mentions something, I'll then go away and read it. And it's just something I continually have to do. Um, 
and again, if you're doing, a, say, a post-mortem report and there's an unusual drug there, you'll have to do quite a bit of reading to be able to interpret that properly. So again, that keeps the CPD going. The biggest problem I face is actually, again, disseminating that out to the folk in the lab so that they can keep up with what's going on. Because mm -hmm. um, the last thing I want to do is to keep all the information to myself because I want to retire and hand the service over in about seven years. Right. Okay. And do you, do you do any research? Um, you've published some papers, haven't you? Yes. At the moment, no, um, because of lack of time. But yes, I have over the years, particularly my last job, which was part routine clinical, part research as part of a teaching hospital setup. And that fully enjoyable. Um, haven't done so much now, apart from some work on alcohol markers with maternity, looking for markers of fetal alcohol mm. spectrum disorder. So we pick up the alcohol use in mum. The child then has a potential diagnosis, so problems then start. You can get the correct treatment in early, which hopefully will improve that child's life a lot. What treatment would you recommend in that case? It's for, for the for mums, it would be support to try and reduce the alcohol use. For the children, it's sort of educational support, helping them deal with the specific pathology as it arises, rather than staring at a kid that isn't developing very well and not knowing why, and that taking years to get a diagnosis, you get in there quickly with a specific um, educational support, social support from the very early, and then hopefully that gives the child a chance to develop in a much more sort of normal if you like, fashion, but a way that it means they aren't as impaired by what happened to them in the uterus. Right. Okay. All right. Thanks, Nigel. So we've got some quick fire questions, Nigel. So it's the sentence for you to finish. And the first sentence is the future of my profession, which you can take as toxicology or biomedical science, mm -hmm. is? I think interesting. Um, I've got no idea where it will go. Um, but for folk who want to get into it, there's an awful lot of jobs coming up, I think. Yeah. So mm -hmm. the second question, Nigel, my science hero is? I think it actually might be a teacher I had at school. And that sounds a bit corny, but I was a bit of a, I forget how my mum described me, but I was a bit of a, a time waster at school. And he got me interested in science. Um, he just... It was his final year before retiring, and he just enthused me with a love of chemistry. So his name was Sandy Powell. Uh, brilliant. Do, do you think he would have gone down a different career route, potentially, if it wasn't for him? <laughs> probably yes. Yes. Um, quite what, I have absolutely no idea, but probably yes. And did, did you always want to be a, a biomedical scientist, or were there any no. dreams of being a or anything like that, Nigel, when you were younger? No, I got to university. I got a degree, then it was early 1980s, and I thought, I need a job. And the first job I got was working as a junior B MLSO. Um, yeah. And that started me off on the path. I didn't have a grand career plan. I just sort of stumbled about, really, I think is the best way of putting it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, the, the third question. When the pandemic is over, the first thing I will do is... Either go and visit my father-in-law or go and visit my mother. Nice. And um, the final question, which, um, and just for context, so everyone knows we're recording this at nine in the morning. 
when this interview is over, the first thing I will do is put the kettle on. Nice. Are you a tea man or a coffee man? Oh, tea, tea. Lab technician through and through. Yeah. <laughs> um, Brilliant. Nigel, thank you so much for your time today and joining us. It's fine. really appreciated and um, it was a pleasure hearing about your work. Lovely. Thank you very much. Um, Thanks now. Welcome to this month's Lab Life. And I'm with Jayanta Brahma, who is a biomedical scientist with over 15 years experience and he specializes in transfusion science and hematology in Plymouth. Outside of work, he's incredibly active and has completed several challenges, including the Ironman triathlon, considered one of the most difficult one-day sporting challenges in the world, and he's climbed the equivalent of the height of Olympus Mons on Mars, the solar system's tallest mountain. Jayanta, welcome to the podcast. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having me. So, how did you start doing these record-breaking challenges? Have you always been in health and fitness, or is this something you took up a bit later on? Uh, I've always been in a decent shape, but uh, these particular things happen because um, of things that happened in my life. So this, this climbing challenge, this Olympus Mons challenge, that happened when I was struggling with my own mental health, really, and uh, being active, uh, helped to, to deal with that. There's quite a, a lot of difficult things were happening at, at that time in my life. And uh, one of my best friends died from cancer at that time. And it was kind of a tipping point for me. Oh. So uh, it turned out that, that climbing, there was research papers that uh, rock climbing was particularly good for your mental health. So, so I, I started doing that and I was there every day doing it, getting benefits from it. I became friends with the, the gym owners and uh, we, decided to this was going to, where I was going to do a challenge and raise some money for some charities as well and uh, in, in the first instance it, it wasn't actually for a mental health charity it was for a, a brain tumor charity because that's that's what he died of my, my, my friend wow. and uh, but but it, it certainly helped my mental health and when the challenge was gone uh, as much as I like climbing um, I preferred to do other challenges let's do something else I thought I'd do uh, so I kind of left climbing behind and um, decided to start running and then running and cycling and then triathlon included swimming. And uh, just speaking from the life of a, a biomedical scientist, it can be particularly testing on your resilience and uh, on your mood, the things you have to deal with every day, sometimes are quite traumatic, not just the patients, but also how things are working in the lab, sometimes other staff and it, other teams it's, it can be very stressful you can't take time off or uh, all sorts of things and, and things outside of life as well so, so it's I just found it more and more important that you deal with your mental health in ways that are appropriate to yourself and, and mine is doing ridiculously uh, long distances on the foot <laughs> and in the sea and on bike <laughs> so just going back to the Olympus Mons Challenge, you scaled the wall 5,000 times, right? And climbed over 22,000 metres. How long did that take? Yes. Gosh, I can't remember, really. Because um, I'd, I'd turn up really early in the morning because the climbing was really popular with, with the, student, the local students there. And they got a big discount as well. So there was quite a lot of people later on in the day. So I'd get there and it was freezing cold in the morning. And when people started to come in, I didn't want, didn't want to hog this particular part of the wall, which was the tallest part and the most challenging part. 
So I'd go there for a couple of hours every day, every other day. I have a, a, a little clicker thing that would record how many times I've done it. Um, it took a few months to do, really. I, I was studying at the same time and working at the same time and uh, mentally recovering at the same time. So it, it, I, I didn't rush it. I got a lot of blisters and a lot of aches and pains. But yeah, it took a few months, I think. Wow. I can't remember. <laughs> and um, could you tell us a bit more about the Ironman triathlon? I mean, what was that like? Yeah. Well, Ironman, it, it's kind of what I do now. I kind of identify now as, as, I, as an iron athlete. And mm. it, the, the training itself is much more than the day. It's when, when you finish, you feel like a million dollars. And, um, but the, you've got to tra train so much. So what, while you compete in 17 hours to complete uh, a, a sea swim, um, a 112-mile bike on the road, and then a marathon, uh, you've got to do that in 17 hours. But the, the hours of training, the days, the weeks, the entire year of training all culminates in one day. So the 17 hours is not as daunting as it sounds when you put it in it's not something you just turn up and do i suppose <laughs> but uh yeah so that's just the payoff it's the reward really just keep keeping in tune with it self-discipline taking your mind off everyday traumas <laughs> things like that uh, they help you to get to the finish line the, you know, the race doesn't start on, on the start line it starts when you start to train how much money did you raise for charity thousands of pounds over over the years I've, I've raised for it but you know, the same people they don't want to they don't want to give the same amount of money each time they just <laughs> they shy away every, each new race because what's he doing now oh i've given him some money before <laughs> don't think i'll give him any more so it does get harder as it goes on but the more the more ridiculous the challenge is the more likely people are to um give you some money for it mm. And um, during the pandemic, has there been any particular challenges? As in health and fitness challenges, has there, have you done anything specifically for that mm. during the pandemic? Well, let's see. I have, I've been training for uh, an Ironman that was cancelled last year. Mm. I'll, I'll continue to do that. I've been uh, doing the virtual racing to, to, to keep my mood up and fitness going. Um, I have an ultra marathon in at the start of April, 46 miles on, on foot, which I need to get a bit more in shape for that because that's crept up on me. Um, yeah, but it, it's as, I, as I've said before, it, it's, it's not just the race and, and it's not just putting on your shoes to do it as well. Um, there's got to be a driving reason behind it. And I could quite easily just given up and hibernated throughout all of this COVID thing and like maybe just run a bit. But uh, feeling so isolated, are you racing on your own, training on your own? And um, uh, at the start of the COVID pandemic, uh, my training partner and a best friend, yeah, he's, he sadly took his own life. And many of these races I was going to be doing with him, I'd train with him. Uh, obviously, with, with COVID, they weren't going to happen anyway in the same way, but we still would have trained together. And this race is an open air one, this, uh, this ultra marathon. Obviously, we can't do it together. So it, it's, it's, a, it's a big mental strain, but at the same time, it's supposed to be relieving the mental strain. So you can't, can't really win. <laughs> if I don't do it, I'll go mad. If I do do it, I am mad. Yeah. See what I mean? <laughs> would you have any advice for someone who? 
who maybe runs, is active, but would like to start doing these challenges um, and lacks a bit of motivation? Uh, there are communities out there online that you can quite easily find. If you go through Facebook, Instagram, they're all set up. You might have a local running club. Just, just do things that interest you in the first instance. If you hate running, don't, don't run. <laughs> if, if you like cycling, do that. If you like to swim, do that. I know swimming is difficult at the moment, but there are ways around it. Uh, don't go open water swimming on your own. It's pretty dangerous, <laughs> despite what people might tell you who do it. Just don't do that. Um, but it, 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 I, I, from the school of thought, that um, no one likes running. I think anyone's naturally uh, mentally built to run. And uh, when you start doing it, it's, it's horrible because you never run. And the older you get, the harder it is to start out, that is. So keep it easy don't compete with anyone it's just it's just yourself so just go out there if you want to do one kilometer one mile half a kilometer just just go and do that and come home and you've, you've done it and then go and do it again but don't don't feel that these olympic races on other uh, social media like strava and garmin who are racing ridiculous miles at ridiculous times it's their race don't, don't compete with them because you'll just get demoralized and give up you just do it for yourself and then remember how you feel when, you, when you've met, met your targets. When you finish that, you got out there and you did it. You feel better about it. And uh, the more you do it, the better you'll feel, the better your body will be. And uh, the choice of foods that uh, you may enjoy, uh, they're expanded. You can, you can eat what you want, really, unless you want to be an elite athlete. That's, that's what I do. <laughs> yeah, I've been actually, I took up some running during, during lockdown. So much better. It just really brings up your mood. So yeah, I, I just recommend it. You're saying as well that it lifts lifts your mood up. But at times like now, when everyone's feeling so isolated, that uh, it, it's it's legally permitted, isn't it, to go out there and do your exercise every day? So uh, exploit that. Get out and get out in your local area, and um, yeah, you'll you'll feel better. You'll feel better for doing that rather than just sat in stagnant home watching Netflix over and over again. <laughs> <laughs> okay then well thanks so much for coming on thanks for your time oh, you're welcome and you can find more information about Gianta's health and fitness challenges in our show notes thanks so much for listening we hope you enjoyed the episode these podcasts are released monthly at the same time the magazine comes out so whenever a new issue lands on your doormat head back online to listen to a new episode and don't forget that these podcasts can be used for your CPD take care and bye <laughs>